the sermon this morning comes from Matthew chapter 22. It is uh, a two-part series called Priorities. Uh, today is Priorities 1. Next Sunday will be Priorities 2. I don't know if y'all know how I put that together. Um, but back in Mississippi where I come from, that's how we count, 1 and then 2. I hope the same is true. I can't go much further than that, but I got it, uh, 1 and 2. But we're going to talk about priorities from Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40, particularly this morning focusing on verse 37. That word priority is a word that means so much. We will either understand it and practice uh, the exercise of establishing and maintaining priorities and we will thrive in life or we will neglect priorities and we'll neglect the uh, importance of establishing and maintaining priorities and our life will uh, it'll fall apart. Uh, that's just the nature of it. We must have priorities in order to move forward. Otherwise, we just sort of meander through life. Uh, Dr. Eric Erickson is a 20th century um, German-American social scientist, and he, uh, he came up with something that he called the psychosocial developmental stages. And in his theory, he says that uh, we, as we are born and then as we grow, we move through these stages of life, and in each stage of life, our focus will change depending on the stage of life that we're in. And he theorizes that uh, based on how well we focus on and successfully implement these focuses in that particular stage will determine or lead to the result of succeeding in that stage of life and then moving on to the next one. So let me just share these with you so that you understand what I'm, I'm talking about. He said that we begin in the first stage of life is called infancy. Uh, the first stage of life, the focus is on feeding, all right? Anybody that's had a little baby baby and the first service, we had a six-week-old child here. Wow, amazing. Don't touch babies that young. Um, but the, the stage of life, the focus in that is, any of you know, it's eating, sleeping, and cleaning up uh, the child because the, that's where they are. That's the focus of their life. That's what the baby does. They, they eat and they sleep and then they need to be cleaned up. After infancy, um, they, we move into what he calls early childhood. The focus of early childhood is on toilet training. Now, any of you who have had children in the house that are going through toilet training or potty training, you know this. It is all hands on deck. It, it, do I need to say more? It is the focus of everybody. Their priority is your priority in that moment. Uh, and I am so glad that we are almost out of that phase. So close. It's glorious. Uh, after early childhood, we move into preschool. The, the uh, focus of preschool age is a time of exploration. This is the stage in life where kids ask questions and questions and questions and questions and questions. And they question everything about everything about everything all the time. And you just don't know how to give enough answers, so you ultimately get to the point where you're like, just stop talking to me. I love you, but stop talking to me. After preschool, they move, uh, we move into what we call the, what Dr. Erickson calls the school age. The focus on school age 
period of life is on education and other experiences related to the school system or education um, institution. So this is the stage where you wake up, you get dressed, you eat breakfast, you go to school, you spend all day at school, you get out of school, and then you go to an extracurricular that's usually associated or related to the people that are in the school or at the school so that you can go home, you can shower, do homework for school, get in the bed so that you'll be rested up for the next day to do it all over again. It's all about school. After the school age, we move into what uh, we call adolescence. Now, that doesn't mean that you're out of school, but the adolescent stage, according to Dr. Erickson, the focus of this stage is heavily dominated by social relationships. Now, parents, grandparents, you will know if your child has reached the adolescent stage if you have forgotten what their face looks like, but you understand what the top of their head looks like. It's like this. You know, they're in that stage. It's all about social relationships. They're engaged with media apps. They're engaged in texting or calling or communicating with other people. Uh, children or, or tweens or teenagers that are in the adolescent stage, like they are fascinated and entirely focused on social relationships. Following adolescence, we have young adulthood. Young adulthood's focus is on romantic relationships. This is when we transition from just having friends to now having the friend. Finding the one person on the face of the earth that God wants us to be married to, the one that we can fall in love with and be in love with and live off of love with. Because when you're in that stage and you find that person who needs money, because <laughs> we've got love. So much of life hinges around the romantic relationships in young adulthood. If we su successfully, according to Dr. Erickson, navigate young adulthood, whether you find the romantic relationship or not, we move into what he calls middle adulthood. The central focus of middle adulthood is on work and parenting. It is about career advancement, uh, acceleration. It is about climbing up in whatever career profession you have and also about parenting any of the children that the Lord has given you and, and successfully finishing the day better than you started, successfully finishing the day with the same number of children that you started with, preferably the same exact children that you started with. And then following middle adulthood, the final stage that Dr. Erickson brings, and he says this is the final stage of life, these developmental stages is called the maturity stage. The focus is on reflection. Storytelling and reminiscing, thinking about the good old days, telling stories, remembering what it was like when it was like those things. Now listen to this statement the Lord has given me for the church this morning. The daily needs in our life may evolve as we mature, but the priority must always remain the same. Let me bring that home for you. As you go through life, you're, the stages of life, you may transition from toilet training to exploration to school age to social relationships to romantic relationships to career advancement all the way into maturity. You may walk through all of these stages of life, but your priority must always remain the same. And what is that priority? Jesus says the priority is that you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of, this, all of your soul and with all of your mind. No matter what else you're going through, no matter what other focus your life has, that priority should carry through all of them. He should be your priority. He should be our priority. 
This passage comes from Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. Would you join me as we read God's word? But when the Pharisees, Jesus is, uh, Matthew is giving this account, and Jesus is the main character. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. He said, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your soul and with all of your, uh, with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. Jesus says, this is the great and the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. So Jesus says, this is the priority that you have. Your number one priority, our number one priority, my number one priority, this church's number one priority should be to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind. No matter what else we go through, that priority must be maintained. So how do we do that? Well, Jesus gives us the answer in verse 37. He says, first, that we should love. We should love, not just any type of love. We should love the Lord in the way that the Lord has loved us. This is point number one. How do you make the Lord your priority? And that is to love the Lord the way that he has loved us. Now, what could that mean? In the Greek New Testament, there are four types of love that we encounter, four words that are used to, uh, to say love that we encounter. But there's only one that is the way that the Lord has called us to love him and to make him a priority. He could have told us uh, eros, to use the word love, eros, which is the physical or sensual love that's found between a man and a woman, but that's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say to love the Lord in a sexual way. Another word that could have been chosen is the word phileu, which is the love for brotherhood or brotherly love or friendship. We know the city of Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. He could have used that, but that's not how Jesus called us to love the Lord. He didn't call us to love him uh, in a brotherly way or in a camaraderie way or just to have him like a pal. Uh, Another Greek word for love is storge. And this is the family love. This is the love that is between a father and a son or a mother and a daughter or brothers and sisters or aunts and uncles and nephews and nieces. It's the family love, but that's not the love that Jesus called us to love the Lord with. Rather, he told us to love the Lord with what we call the agape love, which is the sacrificial love. It is a love where we choose to sacrifice on behalf of the one that we're choosing to love, where we give up one thing to have the other. And Jesus calls us to love the Lord our God by sacrificing these things so that we can have relationship with him in this way. Now, that's not just Jesus coming up with something that's brilliant and philosophically eloquent. He's actually referring to something very specific contextually. What Jesus is doing is he's quoting as the greatest commandment, as the greatest law, he's quoting Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. We read it earlier, but if you would like to, we can turn back to it so I can share with you the context. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses has led the people of Israel... By God's goodness, Moses had led the people of Israel out of slavery through 40 years in the wilderness, and they are just about to enter the promised land. And God tells Moses to tell the nation of Israel some final instructions to prepare them to enter into this new season, to enter into this new place. 
And he tells them, the greatest command that I have for the nation of Israel, now that you've come out of slavery and you've come out of 40 years of wandering through the wilderness, the greatest command that I have for you in this season is that you would love me with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. That's exactly what Moses tells the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. And the reason that he tells them that is because God knows that the nation of Israel is moving into the promised land. And when they get into the promised land, there are going to be all sorts of distractions to get their attention. When they go into the promised land, you can read this in the last part of verse, uh, chapter 6 and, the, and moving forward in chapter 7. When they get into the promised land, they're going to face a number of things. Number one, they're going to find there are worldly riches, there are wealth There's wealth beyond anything they've had before. They're moving into a land flowing with milk and honey. They're going to be precious resources that are not their resources. And the Lord wants them to know, don't be distracted by wealth and by riches, but love me. Choosing to sacrifice those things to maintain a relationship with me. He says, not only are you going to encounter wealth that's not your wealth, but you're going to encounter women that are not your women. Moses tells Israel, when you get into this new land, there are going to be people with women that are not your women that haven't been promised and given to you. And you don't need to be distracted by these women. And he says, not only are there going to be riches and wealth and women, but there's also going to be a set of worldly idols. There are going to be gods that are not your God. There are going to be gods that are not the true God who you have. And so if you're going to love me, and if you're going to make a priority of me, you have to sacrifice wealth, you have to sacrifice the distraction of women, and you have to sacrifice these worldly idols so that you can have a relationship with me. Can I just tell you, it's amazing. It's amazing to me and interesting to me that Jesus is talking 2,000 years ago about a situation that happened hundreds, thousands of years before with Moses. And Jesus is saying the things that are going to distract the nation of Israel... Wealth, women, and worldly idols were the same things that were distracting people in Jesus' day. And interestingly, these are the same three things that seem to catch us off guard today. You know, the enemy doesn't have any new tricks. He doesn't need any new tricks because we seem to continue falling for the same old ones. And Jesus tells us in this great commandment that if we're going to make the Lord our priority, that we need to love the Lord our God by sacrificing the temptation and sacrificing the draw to become wealthy or to have uh, women or spouses or partners that are not the ones that God has given to us, the one that God has given to us and promised us and given us in covenant relationship. And we have to sacrifice the temptation to follow and pursue false idols and worldly gods that are not the one true living God. And so if we're going to make God our priority, we must love him in a sacrificial way, willing to sacrifice all of the temptation and all of the sins that draw our attention and give ourselves entirely to the Lord. But here's the second point. The first is that we must love him in a sacrificial way. The second is that we must know him in a personal way. We look at the scripture in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, and Jesus says the greatest commandment is that you would love the Lord. Now watch this. Don't miss it. It's easy to overlook. That you would love the Lord, your God. Now that word, your, is very specific. It speaks of personal possession and personal relationship. Now Jesus doesn't say that you would love a God. It doesn't just say that you would love the God. He doesn't say that you would love their God. He says that you would love Who's God? Your God. 
Because Jesus wants there to be a personal, intimate relationship. That word your speaks of personal possession. And in, in those possessive words, they speak of endearment. It's like during this, uh, during this season, as school has kicked off, teachers will say, oh, I just love my kids. Educators, they're talking about their classes. They haven't had them long enough to stop saying this. But they say now in these first weeks of school, they say, I'm just loving my kids, my class. They're, it's personal endearment. Or like the little child that got a new puppy, they'll, they'll hold their puppy and they'll just say, oh, I just love my puppy. It's, it's mine. One time, uh, a few years ago, we had gotten a new dog, and um, a new puppy, and uh, this little girl from church came over and she yanked that dog up by its head and said, I just love my puppy. And, and I thought, if you don't put that puppy down, you're going to wish uh, it was your puppy because I'm about to beat you. <laughs> Yanking up my dog like that. But the relationship, this, this priority, it, it hinges on personal knowledge. Now, in, uh, a few years back, Cambridge University did a, uh, a survey, and based on their survey, 95% of U.S. citizens or U.S. Uh, population that was surveyed, 95% said that they believe in God. And I found that to be remarkably inaccurate. But then I started thinking about the, the way the survey read. And, and what they said is 95% of Americans believe in a God. It doesn't say that they know God. You know, there's a big difference between believing in him and knowing him. There's a level of, of knowledge. And I believe that for those that know God, there's three levels of personal knowledge. Number one, people know God by reputation. Some of you, you know God, not personally and intimately, but you know him through reputation because you've heard other people talk about him. You've heard the stories of close friends talking about how the Lord has carried them through their life or, or walked them through a particular season. You know about God by reputation because you've heard even in this church us sing songs about him. But really, God is nothing more than a title or a reputation that you've heard others talk about or seen printed on a t-shirt or even listed on the outside of a coffee mug. There's a deeper level, though. Some people know God more than by reputation, but really only by memory. Some people know God purely based on memories. Sure, they've truly experienced the goodness and grace and love of God in the past, but it's just like a friend that they had in childhood or back in college. You spend all your time together, summer breaks, winter breaks, meant sleepovers and swim parties, but really you haven't seen or talked to him in many years because all you know about God is based purely, entirely on your memories. But if we're going to make God our priority, we can't know him by reputation. And we can't know him just by memory, but we need to know him intimately, presently. And this is the third level of personal knowledge is an intimate, personal, continuous relationship with him where we know that he is right here, right now with us. And we know he's walking with us in a loving, persevering, patient way, revealing himself to us and walking us through knowing him in a deeper way and loving him uh, and showing his love in a wide way. And we continue not only to know him personally and intimately today, but we continue to seek him every single day from this day forward. You know, how you know God is often revealed in what you call him. The psalmist tells us, tells us in Psalm chapter 9, verse 10, those who know your name will trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. 
Uh, let me illustrate how you know people is often dictated by how you call them. Uh, one of the most common questions a new pastor is asked, one of the most common questions that I've been asked since coming here uh, just this week is, what do you want us to call you? People have asked, what do you want to be called? And I can think of all sorts of names I don't want you to call me. And I can think of some names that would be okay for you to call me, but people, uh, based on how they call me, it often reveals how well they know me. Like if I go to a restaurant and the hostess is there and they say, how many will it be? And I tell them the, the number in our party and they'll say, okay, what's the name? And I'll tell them it's Scott Thomas. And the hostess will sometimes say, well, is Scott the first name or is Thomas the first name? It reveals that they don't know me very well. Some people will call me, you know, Scott Thomas and not knowing which is which. There are some people that call me Dr. Thomas or Reverend Thomas. I appreciate being called Dr. Thomas. It, you know, I earned a doctorate degree. I think that I appreciate it. My mama, who's here, she appreciates it even more when you call me Dr. Thomas. Um, but people that call me Dr. Thomas or Reverend Thomas, it, it, it shows that they respect me, that they know my position, that they know my title, that they know the office that I hold. But it may not reveal that they know much more than that about me. There are some people that call me Brother Scott. Brother Scott is, is something that I've always been called in pastoral ministry. People that call me Brother Scott, it usually indicates that, that they know me not only in my office, but they know me in the function of being a pastor, being a brother, being someone who not only wants to, but longs to walk with them through seasons of life. And people will call me Brother Scott often because they've walked with me through seasons of life. And so sometimes when you hear people call me Brother Scott, it means that they, they know me pretty good. But there's a group of people that have the ability to call me something beyond Brother Scott. They know how to call me Little Scott. Now, if somebody calls me Little Scott, that's because they know my dad, who's here, is Big Scott. And I'm Little Scott. And these are people who grew up with me, and they know things about me that should never, on the face of this earth, be spoken again. They, they know things about my childhood. They know things about my high school years. Uh, and don't you judge me. I know that you have people in your life that know things about you that should never be spoken again. But people that call me Little Scott probably are the folks that know me on that level. They've known me for a long time and they know the ups and the downs. There's one uh, final category of names that I'm called and there's really only one person that is here that can call me this. There's only one person that knows me well enough to call me this. And that is, uh, I'm sometimes called husband or baby or sweet lips. <laughs> and let me say, that one person ain't you, so don't be calling me. If I hear any of you calling me that, we're going to find the woodshed of this church and we're going to do some old-fashioned church discipline. No, that's my wife. My wife knows me better than anyone else. She is my partner. She's my bride. She's the one that walks with me through all of life. She's the one that sees me standing on mountaintops with the Lord. And she's the one that has stood with me and seen me broken in the valley as God ministers to my soul. She's the one that can call me that because she knows me deeper and better than anyone else. You see, how you call God will often reveal how well you know him, as the psalmist says. And some of you call God in a very unfamiliar way because at best you know God by reputation. 
Some of you will call God by a name that you've learned through the memories of him carrying you through a difficult situation, but you don't call him in a very familiar or intimate way because it's really only a relationship you remember. But there's some of you who know the Lord, your God, in an intimate way, and you were able to call his name from a place of meaning and from a place of personal ongoing relationship because you know that he is indeed your provider because he provided for you when no one else could. You know him and are able to call him your sustainer because you knew when you were weak and at the end of your rope and nothing else could keep you going, he sustained you in that season. Some of you know to call him father, not because that's what we're told to call him, but because you know that he stood with you and beside you and was patiently waiting and guiding you like a father that you may never never have had. Some of you call him defender because you know that when all of the enemies in all of the world were coming to attack you, he stood in front of you and he defended you so that you could know what peace and shelter and refuge feel like. What you call God will often reveal how you know him. And Jesus says that if you are going to make him your priority, not only do you need to love him in a sacrificial way, but you need to know him in a personal, intimate way. Here's the third way that we make God our priority. Number one, again, is to love him sacrificially. Number two is to know him personally. And number three is to be consumed by him entirely. It's to be consumed by him entirely. The scripture tells us in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. Again, Jesus is not only giving us the greatest commandment, but he's instructing us on how to make the Lord our priority. He says to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. In other words, with every bit of your being, not with just some parts of it here and other parts of it there, but with all of it. And not only to love him with all of your being, but to allow him to have presence in all of your being the heart that he speaks of. It talks about our feelings and our passions. We have a heart and we should allow the Lord to have a presence in our heart and have a presence in our feelings. Uh, You think about the heart and that old football movie, Rudy. Did any of you see that movie? Oh, it's good. And the coach looks at Rudy, this scrawny little dude that's trying to play for University of Notre Dame. And he says, you are small and you don't have a lot of talent, but you have a ton of heart. We should allow the Lord to touch and to be in our hearts, all of our hearts. And we should love him with all of our hearts, all of our feelings, all of our passions, all of our emotions. We should love him with our soul. The soul is our eternal being. It is where our will And our right is as eternal existent people. We should love him with all of our soul, all of our eternality. We should love him. I had a church member who one time was having a conversation in their workplace about eternal security. And they were talking to a coworker about uh, eternal life. And they were talking about how everyone will live forever. And this church member made an incredible statement. They said, we shouldn't be as concerned with our eternal existence as we should with our eternal assurance. The question is not, will you exist forever? That's a yes. The question you should be asking is, where will you exist forever? We should love the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul, but also with all of our mind. 
Our mind is where our understanding is. It's where we come into contact and connection with the revelation of a one true living God and the purpose by which and for which he has created us. And we should love him with all of our mind, which then leads to all of our body because our body will follow our mind. What we think and what we set our minds on is where our body will follow and what our habits will include. And Jesus says that if we're going to make the Lord our priority, that every part of our being must be committed to loving the Lord. In 2013, my wife and I, uh, we had an experience that changed our lives forever. We had our first child. Um, we had our first child, and this little human species uh, wrecked everything in our life. The one thing that, that was impacted the greatest by having our first child was our sleeping schedule. I mean, Scott the third, some of y'all met him, he, he just changed, I mean, like, Every hour of every night, the child needed something. And it wore us out. And I don't know if this is true about second and third children, because I've learned to sleep through their crying, but <laughs> I knew it was true about the first one, because he was waking us up at all hours of the night. And so um, we learned that the Lord has gifted parents with this incredible resource to help us get through this transition from um, non-parenting to now parenting. And th this resource the Lord has blessed us with is called coffee. <laughs> Did I get an amen? But I was, in children, uh, I was in youth ministry before I uh, had a, a son. And so in youth ministry, I didn't drink coffee. I just drank energy drinks, which turns out are not good for you in any way. And so I stopped drinking those. And, and now I'm learning about coffee back in 2013. But I didn't know anything about coffee. And honestly, I'd never even made a pot of coffee. So I needed to learn about coffee. And this is what I learned about coffee, all right? You didn't think you were going to learn about this today, but... You're welcome. So there's three common traditional ways that we make, uh, contemporary ways that we make coffee. The first is through the traditional drip method. Some of you have seen this. It's a Keurig or, or just a pot of coffee. And this is a very simple approach to making coffee. You put the coffee in a filter. You put the filter in the top of the machine. The water heats up and it drips down through the coffee grounds and into the pot. And then in the pot, you have what? Dirty water, that's right. <laughs> so you've got the, the drip coffee. Uh, I then learned that there's an, uh, a better way to make coffee, and it's called the French press. All right, some of you know what a French press is. Some of you sophisticated types might even use one of those. Uh, full disclosure, I've never actually used one of these. I just learned about it. And so in the French press, you have this uh, container of hot water, and then you'll put the coffee grounds in, and then you've got this top with a, uh, with a stem down and then this metal grated filter that you put into the water and then you get this press the coffee down into the water and the water, uh, the water absorbs the coffee and the co coffee absorbs the water and you know what you get. Dirtier water. You get coffee, French press coffee. But there's a third type of brewing coffee that, quite honestly, the first service almost broke out into revival when I brought this, okay? And I brought this forth. Some of them were reminiscing, and I thought a precious, dear, elderly woman was going to run the pews or run the aisles in revival when I brought this up. But the third 
type of, of coffee making, if you will, that's really common even around this part is called a percolator. Even revival here. How about that? So the percolator is this, all right? Let me explain this to you. Actually, we, we have a diagram to help you understand. This is important for you. So in the percolator, you have this pot, all right? Are you with me still? Yeah? Good. So you've got this pot, and inside the pot, uh, you put water. You set the pot on a heat source, so you could put it on your stovetop, or you could, um, you, sometimes they would have electric ones you plug into the wall, and they have a heat source built in. So you've got the pot on the heat source, and then you put water in the bottom. And then in the middle of, the, uh, in the middle of this pot or this canister, you have, um, you have a tube labeled on the diagram as hollow tube. Are you still with me? This hollow tube runs all the way up the middle, and then at the top, near the top of the tube, you have this, uh, this metal filtered basket where you're going to put your coffee grounds, and then you have a lid on top of that. No, this is the way that a percolator works. Are you still with me? I know this is deep. I want to make sure we bring everybody along. So you put the water in the pot, and you put the coffee on the filter, And then the water is heated by the heating element beneath. And as the water is heated, it is sucked up into the the vapors. The steam is sucked up into the hollow tube that's running up the middle of the canister. And as it gets to the top of the pot, because it's further from the heat source, it cools down. And then the cooled water vapor will then drip down into the coffee and through the coffee grounds, through the perforated filter, and then back into the reservoir of water that's on the bottom, which gives you what? Dirty water. But the process with the percolator is different from the French press and different from the drip coffee because the process isn't done then, and that's what makes the percolator, I'm told, better than the others. Because after it has heated up and gone up the tube and then um, resolidified and then dropped down through the coffee and through the filter and back into the reservoir, it's heated again, and then it steams up through the tube out because it's further from the heat source. It cools and then drips down into the coffee, through the filter, into the water reservoir, and you'll never guess what happens next. It heats up again. It goes up the tube, out, solidifies, drops down to the coffee, through the coffee, into the reservoir where it's even more coffee-ish flavored than it was before. And the process happens, you'll never guess. Again, as long as you keep it on the heat source, the water will heat up now a little bit more like coffee. It'll heat up. It will steam up through the tube. It will then cool down and drop drip through the coffee, through the filter into the water reservoir that's a little bit more like coffee. And you'll never guess what happens next. It goes again. And I'm told that the percolator is good because it's not just water that's filtered through coffee once, but it's water that is filtered through coffee again and again and again and again and again and again until the water's no longer water, but now the water is coffee. You see, when Jesus tells us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind, he doesn't say just come and encounter him one time and then move on about your business, but he says to be all encompassed by him, to be touched in every single way, not just once, but repeatedly over and over and over and over again until there's no component, no aspect, no part of your life that is untouched by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ and the present of the one true living God, our Father. 
Father. He says that we should be people who haven't just been touched once by him or pressed once by him, but we should be people who have been heated up by him until we go to the top and then we are brought back down through him so that we taste a little bit more like Jesus, so that we look a little bit more like Jesus. And then we're heated up again. And then we filter once again through Jesus and through his Holy Spirit so that we taste like Jesus and look like Jesus. And again and again and again and again until it can be said without a shadow of a doubt that this person, that that person, that you, me, and this church has made God the Father our priority. The one that we love sacrificially, the one that we have given ourselves to and we know personally, and the one that we have been consumed with entirely. And so Jesus says that no matter what phase of life you go through, no matter what the focus of the stage of life that you're in, that even as we evolve and the focuses of our life change, that our priority should never change and the priority of our life should be forevermore to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. And all God's people said, Amen. As we move now into a time of invitation, I'm going to invite the worship team, pastors to come forward. It's important that we, we deal with a very critical part of understanding this passage. We're called, we understand that our calling, our command that Jesus has made, and this is true for me, this is true for you, this is true for our church. That God should be our priority. This is the command. The challenge is, is that we cannot make God our priority. We can't do it. Some of you have tried. You've tried to make God your priority. You have attempted to make God your priority. You've tried to bring him up to first place in your life only to experience the failure and depression and downtroddenness that comes by seeing that you get easily distracted and knocked off course. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And the reason that we can't The reason that we can't is because we have sin in our life and because sins in our life our mind has been darkened because sin is present in our life our hearts have been filled and covered with guilt and shame and because sins in our life we don't even want the things that God wants for us because our souls have been corrupted and broken And so it's impossible to make God our priority unless you have Jesus in your life. Now let me show you something. We're moving to an invitation. Don't worry, but I need to show you something. I'm going to teach you something. This is, oh, it's so good. So good. If you're a Bible student, you're going to eat this up. If you're not a Bible student, you should eat this up because it's so good. Back in the 1500s, there was a French theologian who wrote a groundbreaking uh, theological work called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. And he was possibly, I don't know this for a fact, but possibly the first person to ever publish a book that identified the three anointed offices of the Old Testament. The three anointed offices of the Old Testament and how those offices implicated or applied themselves to our human being. And I just want to share these with you as we get to the, to the invitation. 
This theologian says that uh, these offices were emplaced by God. And in these offices, we have, number one, we have the prophet. The prophet of God was anointed to oversee the minds of the people so that they could understand and know God. Then we have the priest in the Old Testament that was anointed and put into position so that the hearts of man and so that the feelings of man could be set free from the condemnation of sin. And he says, not only did... God gave us the prophets and the priests, but he also gave us the king who would rule over our wills to lead us in the right direction back towards God's ways. And so in the Old Testament, God was already giving the nation of Israel. Remember, he told them in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 to what? To love, the, to love him with their heart and their soul and their mind. And he didn't just call them to do something, but then he provided the resource for them to do that by giving them the prophet and the priest and the king. The problem is, is that they still couldn't get it done. Because prophets were going off the handle, priests were, if present, off the handle, and even some of our kings for the nation of Israel were, were insane. And so God saw the predicament of man who was still having trouble loving him with their mind and still having trouble loving him with their hearts and still having trouble loving him with all of their wills their soul, and so he decided that it wasn't enough to have three offices filled with three people, that he would send one person to fill all three offices simultaneously and to do it right this time. And so he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, by way of a virgin to live a sinless life. And Jesus would, after living a sinless life, he would serve all those who trust in the name of the Lord as prophet bringing knowledge and delivering the mind from the darkness of sin and establishing in this kingdom what truth is. And he would send Jesus, his one and only son, to not only be prophet but also to be priest, bringing a sacrifice that cancels out the guilt of the heart and thereby cleanses the consciousness from guilt and shame and delivers us from feelings of inadequacy inadequacy and the crippling pressures of misery that come through the accusing conscience of the fallen and indebted. And not only does Jesus come, and not only has he come as prophet and as priest, but he also came as king. And as king, Jesus rules the will of all people. He guides us who have corrupted wills towards the path of holiness and establishes in us a love for righteousness and a kingdom filled with love and rightness. And so you on your own cannot make God a priority, but God has already said, shown, demonstrated, and given his one and only son, Jesus Christ, so that you can. And if you're tired of trying to commit to the Lord and failing in that attempt every time, I would encourage you to now try Jesus. Because Jesus not only saves you, but he can lead you to the place where you indeed can make the Father your priority. As we move into this invitation, this is what's going to happen. In just a moment, I'm going to um, lead us in a word of prayer. At the close of that prayer, the music's going to begin playing and the invitation is going to be open. If you need to make a decision for Jesus today, if you're tired of having a heart that is being crippled by guilt and shame and you want to be saved from that, I want to invite you to stand from your pew when the invitation opens, and don't hesitate, but make your way to an aisle and come forward. I'm going to be present here in the front. We're going to have other ministers that are available to my left and to my right. And would you take one of us by the hand and say, listen, I need Jesus 
I need Jesus to, to take my heart and to set me free. Or maybe your mind seems to be crippled by doubt or to be confused with lies and you need to know the truth. And you're tired of wondering and asking questions and you want Jesus to come in and to reveal the Father to you. I want to encourage you to come and take me by the hand. Take one of the ministers by the hand and say, listen, I need Jesus to come and to, to do a work in my life and to save me from my doubt. Or maybe you're like me and have had times in life where my will doesn't match with his will. And I can't seem to break this pattern of rebellion and this pattern of, of wondering and running from the Lord. And you're saying, I need to be saved from myself. Any decision you need to make today for Jesus. Or maybe you're going through something, you just need someone to pray over you. When we stand to have the invitation at the close of this prayer, I want to invite you not to hesitate, but to step out and come down front. Take me, take one of the ministers by the hand. Let us encourage you and pray for you. I don't care if you're in the front, in the back, in the balcony. We will wait for you and we want to receive you. I'm going to invite you now where you are. Would you stand? And would you join me in prayer? At the close of this prayer, the invitation will be open. Our ministers are making their way to the front. I'll be down front and centered. At the close of this prayer, if you need to respond today, would you do so? Father, we thank you for the morning, for the opportunity we've had to praise you with our songs, to learn about you through the preaching of your word. And Lord, I thank you that today, God, I thank you that today there are men and women in this room, there are teenagers and children that are being convicted to make you a priority. And they have come to understand that it is only by Jesus Christ that they can. They must trust him as their prophet, as their priest, as their king, as their savior. And so, Father, for them, Lord, would you not only give them the conviction to respond, but would you give them the faith and courage to step out and to take that first step of obedience toward salvation and in salvation. So, Lord, now as we sing, we lift our voices. I pray, God, that you would move the people with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.